Hello, welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. For this episode, we've tried something a little bit different to normal. We've gone live. I was joined by Dr. Chris Smith, implementation lead at Sensei, and a live audience to discuss how to run a PDM project and why they sometimes fail, plus the key differences between predictive maintenance and condition monitoring. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name's Niall. I'm the VP of Marketing at Sensei. We're a cloud-based predictive maintenance platform. So this is Trend Detection Live. So we actually have a podcast called Trend Detection, but for the first time, we're actually taking this live into the masses, as it were, because what I wanted to do is create a more sort of interactive session where I bring an expert on, or Chris in this um, respect, to talk about topics that of real interest to you. So this is the first one. So if there's any technical hitches or issues, I have to apologize because just getting into the swing of things. But if you've got any sort of topic ideas, that'd be absolutely great moving forwards. So in terms of the format, it's going to be sort of a straight Q&A, uh, sorry, interview between myself and Chris. But what I'd really love you to do is if you've got any questions at any point, if you pop them in the chat, which I can see is in use already, which is great. So either pop them in the chat. And what I'd like to do is actually invite people on to ask Chris directly. So, but if you if you don't wish to do that, if you just put a capital N next to your question, so N for Niall, let's say, then I'll just simply ask the question on air. But it really would be great to have a bit of back and forth if there's anything that you'd like to sort of explore further. So yeah, I think that's about all in terms of intro. So I'll... Um, I'll just ask Chris to quickly introduce himself. All right, thank you very much, Now, So, yep. So, my name's uh, Chris Smith. I'm the condition monitoring implementation lead at Sensei. So, what that basically means is I look after the deployments of Sensei across our customers across a number of locations. Uh, so, the US, UK, France, Germany, Japan, etc. Started life uh, doing a PhD in wind turbine reliability. So, looking at physics of failure, how things fail with time and different wind conditions, etc. So really kind of looking into the impact of local conditions on machine health before joining Network Rail in the UK in their condition monitoring kind of area. So looking at asset management, maintenance support, and looking at how to, to bring remote condition monitoring kind of up to date in the, in the rail industry. And then after that, I joined Sensei as a condition monitoring specialist, so kind of doing the, the cool face deployments before doing the role I do now. So hopefully I can answer any questions you have. Fantastic. So I think, so, I mean, as, as you know, the topic today is actually, and the first topic, and the reason why we've picked this topic is because it's it sort of resonated last year. We did a webinar about it, and it sort of created a lot of really good questions. So we're actually looking at how to run the predictive maintenance project, but also look at it the flip side and why why a lot of these projects can fail or the all the reasons that why they found obviously chris's role at sensei is he's heavily involved in the implementation of of predictive maintenance tool sensei so and that's that's why we brought him on so just to i mean to start off with the big question it's why do predictive maintenance projects fail and we know there's not going to be one 
<laughs> one big answer for this. There'll be multiple mm. different strands. I'm, so I'm quite interested to see what you're going to say about that. Yeah, sure. So I think with failing projects, there is a number of kind of almost key stages that projects can fall foul of. And I think there's four, there's really four, uh, three of them really key. Um, and the fourth one in terms of if you're wanting your whole business. So the first is technically fail. Where, and what I mean by that is that you're just not able to, to get the information out you need from machines into the right area in order to start making good decisions about maintenance and starting to predict those failures. So for ourselves, we're a, a cloud-based solution. So getting we need information out from factory floor. What are, and you know, there's there's a number of hurdles to go through that in the kind of IoT space. And I would what I would say is actually technical failure is very rare. You know, there's very few, very, very few projects that we've seen across different industries, et cetera, that completely stop because they have technical hurdles. But what I would say is actually they tend to add, they can add delay um, to a, a project. So if you're running a 12-month project and it takes you, but you have a number of challenges with security because you can't get through the Get, you know you have to have acceptance in terms of getting data out into third-party applications etc that can add those delays that can really kind of stop the momentum of these projects going forward so while i would say they often don't fail because of that they can really slow that momentum and actually that loss of momentum is really can be really critical for people's uptake of predictive maintenance so i'd say that's kind of the, the first hurdle but that's relatively rare, um, especially as businesses are becoming more and more adept at using, um, connecting up IT and OT solutions um, or kind of, so, and it's becoming much more normal with, you know, with the advent of using things like Microsoft Azure as a kind of much more common platform for these kind of things or edge devices are becoming much more intelligent, etc. And so technically, if you get past those first technical barriers, which is very common, the next challenge actually and where it really can be difficult is usage. Um, so something, you know, predictive maintenance solutions are very are often a or pretty much or a decision support tool for a for the maintenance organization. And so it's providing examples of um, where there may be issues on your machines, but if no one acts on those issues or provides the relevant feedback. It doesn't matter. You could have the best technical solution, but if no one uses it, then there's no outcomes. There's no value to be derived from that. So really getting people to start using the application, using it in their day-to-day -day is so, so important. The third kind of links to that, but you know, you could have the best technical solution. You could have the, you know, really, really good users. You, could, you have some really good PDM, what we call PDM champions in Sensei, people who are really kind of committed to using this technology, finding problems, et cetera. But if you're trying to solve a problem that isn't there or a too small a problem with that, you're unlikely to see the value at the end, end of a deployment. And that makes it very difficult from a business perspective to say, yes, we're going to continue using predictive maintenance because the value just doesn't stack up. And especially as actually a lot of the effort in a predictive maintenance deployment is that initial stage of getting it technically up and running. The day-to-day -day usage is actually a relatively small amount of time. But if you're... so. And really that value piece is, you can think of it as, the two, there's two problems we often can see. There's the scope is too small, whereby, you know, if, if you're enabling a technology that's highly scalable, 
you can deploy it across hundreds and hundreds of assets in your plant so you can get lots of information to start on one or two machines or even a small subset a relatively small subset it can become very well first off it's anomalous it's not part of your normal day-to-day for your maintenance users or your reliability engineer so it's hard to concentrate on on that because it's just not as important as all the you know they're com- these things are competing all the time with other other you know requirements the day-to-day so if it's too small people are unlikely to pick it up and also you know if you're looking for to avoid unplanned downtime for example your if you've got a small sample of assets you know there is a chance they just never fail in that period so actually you need to almost need to cast that net wider in order to to have the chance of success and that comes on to the other element of that value is also you you even if you had a really good scope with asset or large scope, if you're not solving a real problem, so maybe you're you're going after avoiding unplanned downtime, because that's you know that that's what predictive maintenance effectively is trying to do: look for issues in machines before it becomes serious issues. But if you don't have a pl- unplanned downtime problem, there's not going to be much value there. And in fact, you may find that you you have an what we call an over maintenance problem. You have a really you do lots and lots of maintenance all the time in order to avoid those problems but it's very expensive you're using lots of spare parts you're not using you know maybe you're doing lots and lots of manual inspections which are not you know adding very little value to the business but take a lot of time and so maybe you're not solving a downtime problem maybe you need to solve a more kind of crucial maintenance problem and even if you have you know so you've solved the technical problems you've solved the usage you know people are using it you're you're going after the right things there's actually and you'll like this Nile you need to be able to market those results so however level that goes, if you're trying to do a whole organizational change into predictive maintenance, getting understand the right channels to speak to the right people about you know, the successes that you have, the value you're bringing is really important and to understand them early. And even on a plant level, you know, you need these, if you're having lots of success, you need to be able to show that to those who are the budget holders, the sponsors, et cetera. I was just going to ask at that point, Chris, actually. So, so stakeholder buying is obviously quite important. So how would you go about achieving sort of stakeholder buying and what types of stakeholders would need to be involved in in the project yeah i think that really comes to, to the start of these kind of projects is very much understanding who the stakeholders are right from the beginning and understanding what their needs are from predictive maintenance so from you know you all the way from the you know the users they're probably not They'll have some care about the the budget, but you know, at the end of the day, they've got problems that are solving day after day, and they just want they want a tool that's going to make their lives easier. So for them, it needs to be simple to use. It needs to be they can see what the value quickly for their day to day, and they can see how it's going to improve their their day to day lives effectively, reduce their stress. In fact, we had a customer recently said that he'd love to turn off predict or sensor PDM because it, it reduces his stress levels. So that's one element, but also understanding that you know the project sponsor needs to see value so understand what is you know maybe that's a maintenance manager where are his pain points and kind of outlining that early on in the project and that's something where we're trying to do more and more we're speaking about value much more in terms with those who help all the budgets etc and then those for higher up you know they've got lots of time competing time and so actually making the, the messaging very simple you know here is an event so for example you avoid some downtime you know the, you avoid a major catastrophe on the line make it very simple say you know put, bring it up to them in some sort of you know explain that's what we're doing and here's some examples of the success and where you know where would you like to go with it from there and 
Very interesting. So, so uh, I know it's probably something we're keen to cover, but there's obviously different phases of, of the project, like any project, whatever industry you're in, it's always split into different phases. And I, I know Sensei has its own sort of way of doing things. So maybe you could talk talk us through uh, the sort of Sensei methodology for the different phases of the predictive maintenance project. Yeah, sure. So we have something called what we call Sensei PDM Omniverse. But effectively what it is, is it is tried to take some of that learning from successes and failures kind of bring it into a, a way a way to visualize and work through all these issues first so that when you get to the end of the project it's it's a simple yes you know it's been successful and really so there's kind of four phases to that there is well in fact it's five i should say but there's kind of a scope phase which is really looking at value and the problems that you're trying to solve um, and you know what that project's going to look like in an act and then it moves into design so now you know what value after what problems you're trying to solve how you know how are you going to solve those so looking at the assets um, or machines that you're going to focus on or providing you the most problems and you know there's a temptation to say go for the most critical asset on your plant but often the most critical asset never fails because it's very you know lots of maintenance a lot of time a lot of energy is put it poured into it because they know if it fails it will cost two three four hours days weeks whatever it might be and actually it's about looking for those assets that are consistently causing issues and that are costing money um, really to focus and you could add the critical assets as kind of an extra insurance but we like to make sure there's a kind of mix in there so there's asset selection and then there's looking at data you know what data have you got what information can you get from existing systems such as plcs or you know perhaps what sensing technologies you might need to to implement in there uh, and then also looking at usage as i mentioned you know who's going to use it what are you going to integrate with so you know we integrate with things like cmms systems like sap understanding how your maintenance maintenance users are, are doing their maintenance how they get under and understanding what they're wanting to do day to day you know where do they go and find out what to do is it in email is it is it in teams is it in a cmms system etc and trying to integrate it into that as much as possible understanding who is likely to be that champion or champions depending on the scale and then architecture understanding how you're getting the information to the right place who do you need to get involved you know it security those on the plant floor like controls engineers etc so that's the design and that's i would say get that right it makes life a lot easier then there's deploy which is very much kind of the nuts and bolts get things move get things connected get people trained get people ready and then so that you know if you've done the design well that bit's really easy and then really the key bit is operate so now that everyone's trained everyone's understood about what they're going to do what they're trying to achieve getting people to use it getting those champions to really look for that value provide the feedback you know we're in our scenario where we use artificial intelligence and machine learning and so the idea of that is that we we surface up things that we feel are important but that feedback is so important to make sure the system is able to learn what is the most important for those so getting them used to that um that workflow and reviewing and and that kind of then finally feeds into what we call refine so refine is not only it's like a, almost a continuous improvement methodology looking at how to continuously make the usage better how to make the case what we call cases or alert system you know more and more refined to what the users need but also looking at 
coming back to that value are you achieving the value that you were set out to do understanding why is that why is that not and then looking out forward you know looking at rene- what would take you to renew uh, and keep using predictive maintenance and keep getting embedded and where else is it going to bring value you know what other parts of your plan or even other sites so really it's design or scope and then design deploy operate and then refine i was actually going to say on to that point so at the end of that point that's presumably for one site or, or maybe a pilot but at the end of that those four or five stages would you go through the same process in order to sort of scale that to other sites and other lines yes with the added advantage that you've done it once so you um in your organization for example it's now going to give you far easier and that's what you know once the system's proved you've got the wit you've got the success you know you, you can now talk to others across your business and say look this you know we think this is a really good thing this is providing us value let's get that let's I think you should be using it. And, you know, we find that in some of our clients, they're quite competitive, the sites. That's always fun, you know, where you've got two sites who are really competitive and say, we've we've done this predictive maintenance thing. Look, at, look how great. Oh, we're going to do it even better. So that's one way that happens. But, you know, so people now believe in it more and see that there is a vision for it and a value in it. You know, you've probably sorted a lot of the integration problems out. Although do be careful. So with integration, uh, is what we often find is you may have solved it locally in one site, but even if you've got the same existing archi- architect existing architecture in every site, there'll always be local nuances to watch out for. But at least you have, you know, you, you've started that baseline, particularly with security. And so really, you can take those lessons learned and see how it fits into your environment. But it is worthwhile going through that process, at least to a certain extent, to make sure that it it maps out. Oh, that's great. I was also going to, you mentioned a few times about the PDM sort of champion. And I guess, would the requirement be to, I mean, how how many would you need for a project? Is it, or is it, they're not a defined number? Is it, is one enough to be able to get enough buy-in to the project? Yeah, I think it's very much, it's related very much to the scope of your deployment, really. And of course, you're going to need at least one, I think is, is the obvious answer. One thing to note with having one, just with anything, and you know, if you've got one person on it and they end up, it's with any kind of maintenance. You, you don't just have one maintenance tech and that's it. Because if they go on holiday or they go, you know, they can only be there certain times of the year because of, for whatever reason, then you, you have gaps. So, you know, perhaps in your environment, it makes sense to have one or two. If you're going for a whole site, then you, it's really about understanding the scope. And there's not really a hard line about it. One thing we want to do for our users is to try and minimize how much they need to use you know, Sensei or predictive maintenance tools. The idea is that the insights to see provide value and not spending loads and loads of time with it. But it is worth having someone who's who in their job description, at least one who's dedicated to doing that in at least some capacity in their role. And that's where, you know, the more you put in at the start, the, the faster it becomes a more streamlined process. And as an example, one of our first deployments, they already had an existing kind of condition monitoring team that looked after about a thousand machines. And there's three of them. And, but they could only, because of their, so they actually already had data because they were using it day to day. But their biggest challenge was they could only look at a small subset of their assets at any one time. And therefore, you know, they're going to miss things because they can only look at so many in a week. It's very labor intensive work, just looking at charts effectively. and. I think it was about, they could look at 50 assets in a week on a good week. And there was three of them. 
when they deployed Sensei, they very quickly could use the same team of three and they were now looking at a thousand assets um, and actually looking at the system less. So they weren't doing the same manual checks all the time, but now they suddenly have a full balance of plant coverage for the same size team. So it's not, you know, and, and that team already existed. So you're effectively making them way more efficient. And they're also now much more valuable to the business as well. Yeah, I know um, from looking at some of our case studies, actually, there's, especially if I think of Nissan, who have scaled up massively, you know, to tens of thousands of assets and still kept a, a very small team, if not, they've not had to grow their team massively in order to support that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've actually got a couple of questions from Gail. I'm not sure if you want to come on camera to ask them, but that, which is absolutely fine. I don't mind relaying them to, to Chris, if you just want to indicate in the chat, maybe. You do, yes or no? If not, if not, I can just ask them. Um, so yeah, so the first question is how how does Sensei handle a greenfield feasibility design build initiative? Oh, I've just taken the question away from you, Gal. But I'll bring you on for the second one. That's okay. That's really interesting. So uh, just so I understand, it's you're going into a new new site. There's no maintenance done on this new bit of line, for example. Is that is that the the scenario? Yeah, I'm actually trying to bring. That's correct. Okay, great. <laughs> That's a really interesting point because I think a lot of what I was discussing was with regards to brownfield. You have a maintenance issue, you have problems, etc. already. And I think greenfield is, I find it quite an interesting one because it's a massive opportunity to kind of skip ahead, as it were. Like there's, there's very much an element of people having their mind this kind of stepping ladder to the best form of predictor maintenance. Like predictor maintenance is the gold standard. Everyone wants to get there, but we have to go through all these things first. There's kind of two elements to that, which are, I find fascinating is first off, actually sometimes reactive maintenance is the best approach for certain assets. I think of that like the light bulb, you're not going to put predictive maintenance on your light bulbs and because it's not worth it. But on the other side, effectively can look at in a greenfield site is un- looking at the machines from a more kind of fundamental level of what, if you've got motors, gearboxes, or you know, say it was a big press machine, etc. You can look at the kind of ways others, other machines fail, and look at the sensor technologies or the data that already exists from that to gather it. So that's from a technical side. It's not actually too challenging. From a value, it's much more about looking at the opportunity to avoid having to do unnecessary maintenance straight from the bat. So. We actually have, we have a, we're working with a business at the moment who have a line that is, it's a peanut line. So they, you know, you've got huge challenges with, you don't really want a lot of people on that line due to allergy concerns and contamination, et cetera. And so actually there's a great opportunity to say, well, actually the problem we're trying to solve is as little amount of people in interacting with that line as possible. So let's sense what we need to, to, uh, to or look at what we need to look at and then drive off when there are alerts or when we should do maintenance on that line rather than kind of going through, let's react and then let's prevent and then predict. And the value is that you avoid ever having to spend that money uh, getting there, as it were. I was thinking about designing for reliability. Right. So that's the opportunity really uh, in a greenfield site before you move into construction or commissioning. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so with designer for reliability, it's then that kind of in there, you have the opportunity to think, even if you design something that is potentially, per- if you design something that's perfect, it's going to be exceedingly expensive. 
if it never fails, the chances are it's actually very over-engineered. And you think you can think of Victorian bridges uh, in the UK, for example, are very much like that. They've been there for 200 years because there's so many bolts in them, unlikely to fall over. Whereas modern bridges are designed for 50 years because people usage changes in that time. And so at that point, you can design it to to last as long as it can, where it's cost effective. But even then, there's always going to be problems with how it's installed. Something's not used properly. The the usage of the app, the asset changes over time. And a real classic example is where a line is designed for a certain size car and then they start building bigger cars and bigger cars and bigger cars but they don't want to replace the asset and so when you're designing for reliability at that point there's also kind of designing for maintenance so you can start to say what points are likely to fail what do i need to measure in order so that i know when to act on that so you and it's quite nice you suddenly you you know very much all the asset parts it's got bearings it's got motors it's got oil it's got a cooling system what should we measure? And at that point, it's actually much cheaper as well than a retrofit to put those things in. Oh, great, thank you. And did you want to ask your second question, Gail? Yeah, I really feel that executive sponsorship is required for that visibility and for maintaining the budget, for understanding the value that a Sensei approach is contributing to the organization and, and then bringing it back up. What mm. are your thoughts there? Yeah, and actually... We kind of interact with both sides and it's, it is a really interesting challenge. So sometimes it, you're talking to C-level who are saying, yeah, this is, this is where I see the organization going. So, you know, this budget, understand it's going to take longer and it may take longer to get there, but it's really, you know, if you've got that sponsorship, that's fantastic. And if, you know, if management organization is well trusted, et cetera, then that will percolate down, no problem. And then the other side is, so that's excellent for kind of wider scale, but it may sometimes be challenging to highlight that there is a tech, there's technical issues that you need to overcome to get there, but at least they'd be able to, to help with that. But the other side is that people come with their, their local problem. We need to solve our maintenance problems at this local site and then moving out. And I, that is really good from a, if you solve the problem, then you're very much there, but it's very hard then as a, from a business perspective, from our perspective, it's fantastic. We've done an excellent deployment there very hard to then move out from that side so yeah i would agree that if you have that executive level backing then fantastic great thank you yeah, thank you oh thanks gail i've actually got another question from Stephen as well don't know if you wanted to come on as well Stephen, to ask chris directly i think you mentioned just once earlier on about condition monitoring and the reason i'm asking the difference uh, between condition monitoring and your preventative maintenance is uh, some customers do have condition monitoring systems on site and how does this fit into it what does uh, sensei replace where does it add value to existing systems just um, from an architecture point of view how does this fit into an existing site okay yeah so um and when you're talking about existing condition monitoring systems is that kind of handheld devices threshold based systems etc at what what level are we talking about oh no we've got i'm from siemens and we have got some systems where you run it we do condition monitoring on transformers on motors on the bearings on a whole host of things and the information is then fed back and that becomes your preventative maintenance although there's no specific preventative maintenance system the information that you get dictates how you do your preventative maintenance so you would say this transformer is going to fail in three months so we should schedule a maintenance in in two months time or something like that where does sensei fit into that scenario 
into that FIP space. Yeah, okay. So when we're talking about that kind of predictive maintenance, what we're effectively doing is, you know, a lot of existing systems are, so if you've got handheld equipment, for example, that that's labor intensive, rarer events, um, and it requires you to, you know, there's risk about when you're doing the tests that the machines aren't in the same mode at that time. So you have to be really careful about those measurement points. And handheld equipment is fantastic, particularly for diagnostic, you know, really diagnosing a, a local problem. But like I said, it's it can be fairly labor intensive. Moving to automated or kind of condition monitoring or even with threshold based, if you know your machine extremely well, putting a threshold in that is is a limit, is again is a is a really valid approach. It does have a challenge, however, of thresholds often need some sort of maintenance, kind of ironically, in that if the machine changes, you need to change the threshold. If you or you find that the threshold is the wrong level, you have to keep updating it depending on the changes. And if you set that threshold in the wrong level, a failure could easily fall under the radar. And an example I have of that is when you have faults that you aren't measuring but are actually coming through a sensor. So we we had a, a an issue on a or one of our customers, I should say, had an issue on a, a heat exchanger. They didn't have any sensing on the heat exchanger, but it was causing the motor to get hotter and hotter and hotter. But they actually had a threshold on the, the bearing temperature. Now, because they uh, and they were sent, had a sensor on that bearing. Now, in that scenario, the bearing wasn't actually get that, getting that warm. It was getting hotter, but it wasn't getting anywhere near the bearing threshold. And that Because that temperature was set for the reason of you know, the bearing fault. But actually, so where Sensei comes in, so we use um, artificial intelligence to kind of learn what is normal for those machines. So what's their normal patterns? And we take into account things like the machine speed, what they're producing on off states, et cetera, to learn what's normal for that machine. And in that scenario, what we picked up that this temperature on the bearing was trending um, away from its normal behavior. And when they investigated, they, they found, well, the bearing is actually fine, but they found that the heat exchanger was clogging. And that was causing the whole motor to to re- start to really heat up. And so in that scenario, they were able to use the unusual behavior happening on that bearing to actually find a fault elsewhere. So it becomes much more flexible. Um, and so and that's where we effectively come in. We we come in as a an automated an automated condition monitoring tool in many ways. Learn what's normal for your machines, um, and provide much earlier insights as to when these things are, are starting to fail or even find faults that are happening elsewhere that are having a, a lower impact than you expect. And with, with it as well is that we can add things like diagnostic messaging to those. So, you know, you provide more information, what that failure looks like, and also learn from past failures as well. So if, you, you know, if, you've, if you've got a fault on a bearing, it has a particular pattern on that type of machine, we, could, we det- detect that, you go and in, intervene, find that there's a, a problem, you add that information to our system, it will then pick that up as a failure signature and look for that again, not only on that asset, but any assets that are of a similar type that would be suitable. So it's really kind of about removing that need to set, uh, keep changing thresholds and kind of look for faults even earlier so you can avoid more damage and even find other issues. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, I think I, uh, you know, I think you gave a good answer. I think my question might have just been a little bit bad. Uh, as I understand your 
it's it's over time learning obviously you're building yeah. up the intelligence so it's from day one unless you've got historical data it's not going to mean much over time it's going to become more intelligent what i'm really trying to understand in my mind is is do you replace a condition monitoring system at some stage or do you still require some kind of condition monitoring out in the field for for sensei to operate let's assume there's lots of historical data Mm. You can learn. You've got a good learning platform to start off from. Would you be able to replace a condition monitoring system? Would you be able to do the condition monitoring, the preventative maintenance, and all of that? Okay, so I think with the that kind of condition monitoring system, I would say, in terms of looking for levels of which to to be concerned about, I think you could effectively take that information that it's using, particularly if it's online, and effectively replace that element of it. Because it's effectively, it's almost like an, an upgrade to be able to find faults earlier. In terms of actually doing the, the preventative maintenance, someone going out, diagnosing the problem, um, we can provide more, we're effectively a decision support tool. So we're looking to provide information to maintenance users so they can make the best decision possible as early as possible. So that, you know, if they've got a fault upcoming, then it's not crisis mode. They can plan it, they can understand what parts they need, get it ready so that they can do it in a scheduled event um, and and to re reduce as much problem issue with that machine you could kind of get rid of that threshold piece but what we find is really valuable is that when you know kind of embedding into their normal workflow so if they have vibration analyst experts um, or you know with handheld equipment or even they have handheld what you can do then is effectively instead of doing that on a kind of periodic view they can allow this allow something like sensei to say these are the, the assets you should be doing it on. So you're kind of focusing that high skill, high value work on only where it needs. And an example of that would be where customers, you know, they used to do a grease sample every six months on every single one of their machines across thousands of machines, which is very expensive. They brought Sensei in to automate their monitoring of that data. And once they were confident with it, you know, we spotted failures, avoided those failures, they then stopped doing those grease samples periodically and only when they had a, a case on that machine that would they do a grease sample. So massively okay. reducing that kind of... I'm looking for opportunity, not for, for competitive uh, or, or from competing points. That's really where I'm going to. I, yeah. I understand. And your, just my last quick question. With your information, you're not just a decision support. Can you give data through to a... A system like SAP, for instance, which most of our customers run for work order generation and, and space and that kind of thing. That's my last question. Thank you. And then I'm actually going to switch my camera on just to show you. This is not minimalist. <laughs> You're really going for a good minimalist. You can put a picture behind you on the wall there. Yeah. Unless unless that's unless you're using a Zoom background, which is terrible. There's better background. Really, yeah, yeah. No, this, this is my actual office. Uh, we, moved, <laughs> okay. it, we moved into this house. I would love to say not that long ago, but um, it's about a year, and we've just not got around okay. to my study. Yet, so I think you should get Neil to give you some tips there. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks very exactly. much. Good shit. Yeah, much appreciated. No Thank you. Yeah, nothing to do with me, I should say. The flowers behind yeah. me, I know nothing about that. <laughs> but, but anyway, slightly off topic. Thanks, yeah. Stephen, for your Thank you. For yeah, your in, in terms of, um, yeah, so I would say we're integratable with other systems. So we're an what we call an open architecture. I don't mean that from a security perspective, obviously, but in terms of our insights are able to be grabbed and put into other existing systems. And we have also done active integrations into 
certain CMMS systems. So, and actually what we find interesting is with a lot of CMMS things, we say, oh yeah, we, we'll develop something to connect it into your CMMS system. And so they often go, no, 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 for security reasons, we want to come to you and pull the information out of you. So that's actually why our architecture is built that way. Is that you know very much you come and grab the information that you need and put it into where it needs to be. And equally, we we can also receive information from CMMS systems back in for that learning piece about what work has been done, etc. Actually, I was going to, I know we take it, we veered off slightly from the the sort of the project thing, but it's been really good, really interesting to hear hear that sort of background. But we mentioned sort of data quality. How how important is that to have good data quality? You know, right at the start of project. <laughs> huge i would say it's like the fact that like 95 percent of prediction accuracy is related to data quality than the technology at the end and actually that's why we spend in that design phase one of the pieces is what data is available and what do we need to consider so if you had to make a decision on data for example you're giving a bit of information with a, a chart and it's got a step change in it and you're told what should i do about this step change you might rightly ask some questions it's like well was there was there a change done at that point did someone do some maintenance a regime change did the machine change speed did you change what product do you make and if not provide any of that information my due diligence would to say well i see a step change so you probably should go and investigate and equally if the data is very erratic and it's moving all over the then with no context as to what's causing that change again as you know as an engineer i'm going to say i would go have a look because i've got no further context what's going on at that point and since the machine learning artificial intelligence is is really the same you know if it sees a step change in your data it has no reason to believe there's anything else then it's it's going to say we have feedback loops, et cetera, that, you know, eventually they will learn, okay, you're not that bothered about that kind of step change. So that's fine. It does work like that. But from, you know, I'm an engineer by trade, to start off from that day dot to be able to say, we change products. Okay, fantastic. Send us that information. You don't need to even tell us what the product is. You just say it's product A, product B, product C. doesn't really matter. We just need a way to label those changes. And so that, in that way, data quality is really important. The other aspect of it, is maintenance input so that first bit is kind of really sensor data the whereas it can be challenging it's it can be well understood feedback from maintenance is also really important and this comes back to that pdm champion really making sure that if they see a change in their data really trying to understand what's going on and that can be hard and we do know some customers who actually have cctv on their machines so they if they see a case appear they just they very quickly go right i'm going to go have a look at that machine and you know just see what's going oh it's hitting something at, at a certain point of the day okay fantastic i'll go get that changed um but that feedback is really important because if and you know if you're if you're putting in maintenance events in the wrong dates or etc it can get very confusing oh, hang on you know there was a step down there but the maintenance said they did it seven days ago that doesn't really align what's going on there whereas if you say yeah we did some maintenance there okay fantastic we can understand why it changed. And also it's a great way to say, yeah, but the maintenance did what we wanted it to. It, it made it a healthier scenario. As it I was just wondering, because you mentioned about that human element. So because we're, we're not saying that AI and machine learning sort of solves everything. You flick a switch and it solves everything. I mean, that'd be great if it did, I guess. But um, so how important is that human sort of feedback loop as well into that sort of process? Huge, I would say. I think I mentioned it earlier is that, you know, if no one's using the application 
it's with any technology you know you could have zoom it's it, or teams or whatever it's fantastic but if no one's using it then it's it doesn't bring any value to anybody and so having that user in the loop there's an old adage you know like the idea that artificial intelligence will replace people but actually what we find is it actually makes people more valuable because it, they can do they can look at more things and you know their skill sets their ability to decide when a machine needs to inter- be intervened with finally and do the maintenance we're never going to replace the sensor we're not going to be able to replace that we don't have a, an army of robots to go do the maintenance so really we want to be supporting those maintenance users as much as possible and again that's why we we say try and get us integrated into the systems that they use don't make it any harder to to use it as it were i think there's a question from jose Yes, uh, we are starting to do a uh, good afternoon or good morning. I'm not sure. Good afternoon, I would say, <laughs> Chris. Yeah. And uh, maybe good evening yes. for us in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. But uh, yes, we are starting the uh, partnership with Sensei in Brazil in the sales approach, of course. Mm. And uh, we've discussed it this morning with Mark and also with, with uh, Nathaniel. Uh, but I didn't go uh, in deep detail with them about the time that uh, we need to have, if necessary, uh, to train and a specific technician in the same side too. Of course, we have to consider that he's got the uh, the background, of course, uh, the basic background, uh, and uh, he needs to be also a technician who has at least a minimal knowledge about condition monitoring techniques and so on. So I, I would like to have this feeling because I would say that our next step would be if we uh, get the first order in our country to have this kind of support for the implementation phase. Yeah, so in, in terms of training, I think we have kind of three elements to it. Um, and we very used to very boldly say it takes an hour to, to train someone in our application. It's kind of maybe a slightly naive view because, you know, with, there's training and then there's learning, which is slightly different. So yeah, we go into three phases effectively. The first is we can provide a kind of, I'd say face-to-face, a, a remote session, where a live session where we just kind of go through the elements of what predictive maintenance is in the context of Sensei, what it's trying to achieve, et cetera. So people kind of understand where we're trying to get to and then kind of do a short session on how the application works so not really going into the nuts and bolts but really kind of the overarching technology as it were and so that's about an hour and a half an hour to an hour and a half depending on how many questions we then have online training so we have a a number of short videos again which is an hour and a half two hours which just goes through all the different elements of the the application and its nuts and bolts for the kind of basic app what we call basic app training but that's you know most users. We also have a an admin user training, but that's more for kind of a, a real super user who's managing it. So that's an hour and a half in per, an hour to an hour and a half in person, an hour and a half of um, videos that they can do in their own time. But actually, the the third element is that we do something called a case review. So cases are our form of notification. So it's our form of note of alerts. And what we do in the beginning is that someone like myself or one of my team. Well, we'll have a half an hour session once a week or once a fortnight, depending on the number of K, like the size of the deployment, and effectively guide them through what are they looking at, what to consider, etc. And that that goes on as long as it needs to. We're very keen at Sensei to provide as much support as needed, but we'll also kind of enable them to 
the user to be able to kind of take that control. So at some point we we kind of say, you guys, you take control, we'll still be there, but you take control and have use the application. And then over time, when we feel like, you know, that, that person's ready, we then can say, okay, fantastic. We can do this once a fortnight, et cetera. You just say how it's going, five, 10 minute uh, catch up. And that's really how we want our users to kind of learn and just get used to using that system. Um, okay. So where the most of the time, it is a, a training on the job, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, interact in uh, through interactions with you and your team. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank I you. I see we have another question from from Gail. If you'd like to come back on. So, Chris, uh, my experience is like everybody's data sucks. Mm. Like it's true. It's uh, you know the asset data. It's not complete. It's missing. <laughs> uh, and you and it's all about the data. We need the data. 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 Mm. data data so what do you say what's your experience what how do you handle that yeah okay you're true most of the time the data is is not great and i thought we although interesting i had one recently where someone said oh data is atrocious and i turned around with them and said it's the best i've ever seen to start with so people often aren't very good at generally the people the worst people think their data is actually generally the, it's probably pretty good because they've actually investigated and gone oh okay these are the gaps i, I said technical failures are quite rare but they do happen and often that if it's not connectivity, it is that people have a poor expectation of what's going to happen, you know, through, through whatever data they have at the system and it will just magically be able to produce perfection. There's an expectation setting there that's really important. And if that's the expectation, people are going to be disappointed. And that's the frank answer. So yeah, data is often bad. And I often see it as kind of like a, the other question we get asked is, well, we've only got current, or we've only got vibration, or we only got X. So it's not complete, and therefore we can't do anything with it. And I, I almost say it's almost like having like one eye covered with an eye patch. You can still see, you can't see everything, but you can see somewhat to one side and a lot to one. So if you've got current, for example, you're very likely to see problems with the drivetrain, especially if things are grinding or there's a problem in the motor, etc. You might not be able to see the bearing fault that's coming until it's quite late, but you may still see it. You know, you've still got some visibility. If you've got vibration, you could see that bearing fault coming from a long, long time away, but you might not spot that the, the windings are, are melting inside the motor. But the key bit there is it's kind of a value assessment challenge. You know, if I've got current already, can I get enough value out of that? And, you know, some of our customers, again, especially at scale, if you've got a thousand machine or a thousand robots and each have got six axes, that's and you want to put a vibration sensor on every single one of the, those axes, that's suddenly you're, that's 6,000 sensors. You're probably not going to do that. But if you've got data coming out of the controllers that tells you about the torque level, or especially modern drives have a lot of information in them. You know, that's not free, but it's, it's available. You're not doing a special investigation. And suddenly you've got quite a good visibility about a lot of those machines. And then you may then say, okay, on our most critical assets, we'll now invest in specific technology. But coming back to that rubbish data, et cetera, what we try and do is try and coach our users about how to get the most out of the data they have. And that's what a lot of my team do. So we have a data scientist, science team who are really kind of focusing on the, the algorithms, how to detect faults, et cetera, et cetera. But before that, someone like the, one of the condition monitoring team is looking about effectively data quality you know what can we pick out of that what do we need to consider to have you thought about speed etc and we do and try and get the most out of the data that's available 
So I'll see we're sort of coming towards the end of the session. Thanks so much for everyone who who sort of stayed on right right until the end. So I'm hoping to do sort of a series of these potentially every sort of couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for invites to that. And if you've got any sort of suggestions on topics or questions on anything we've talked about today, I did put our email address in the in the chats and marketing at sensei.io. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Chris, before we finish on anything we've discussed? No, so I, there's nothing that springs to mind. I just hope it was a useful session for everyone, really. That's my, my main thing. Great. And, but thank you for the questions and the, the interaction. I used to teach in a lab for a short period and there was, there was nothing worse than a group that never said a word. So thank you very much for all the questions. Makes it my life a lot easier, certainly. And thank you for your time, Chris, and your insights really been really good. And thanks, everyone. So, yeah, call it a day there. So thank you, and hopefully we'll see you again on one of these sessions very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. So that was our first ever live episode of the Trend Detection Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We're aiming to host a live session every two weeks. So if you're interested in joining the next one, please email marketing at sensei.io for more information. Please subscribe via your favorite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes. And it would mean a lot if you could let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting Sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.